Welcome to the weekly message from Rama Family Church. It is our hope that as you listen to this message, you will come to know Jesus better and be established in your faith and equipped for the work of the ministry. You can view the sermon notes and listen online at rama.org.au forward slash media. Thank you for so graciously hosting me in my short visit here. And uh, it's been a delight to join hearts together with you. Uh, let's just do a quick count. If you're here, would you raise your hand? Right, almost everybody. Excellent. Uh, how many of you were not here in either morning service? You were not. Okay. How many were? How many don't remember? <laughs> All right. So uh, let me encourage you to stay connected with us. Let us be a resource for you. We do a lot of the hard work, the digging, the research on the tough issues, and then provide resources for you that, that can be a blessing. You can use these, uh, share our articles, share our video, share our radio show. We're on live daily radio five days a week. I had to pre-record some shows because of travel here, but otherwise five days a week weighing in on key issues, answering difficult Bible theology questions, a wide range of subjects. Uh, someone just sent us a note the other day, and we get these all the time, and they were basically thanking me for articulating what they want to say. Because we have a great platform by God's grace. We, you know, we can reach millions of people every week. So as I'm introduced on the radio every day, I'm introduced as your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. The other nice thing about that is that most of the hatred will come towards me and not towards you. <laughs> until you start sharing my articles and links, and then you'll find out that not all your friends are really friends. One guy sent a question in, and he said, I, I had a few people unfriend me since I shared one of your articles. Do you think I should pull it? I'm thinking, buddy, I got like arrows from head to toe going through me, and you're wondering about pulling this. Anyway, um, the easiest way to be connected with us is to use our app. So you can grab your cell phone now if you want. Just take a second. If you're on Android, if you have an Android phone, it's the Ask Dr. Brown app, A-S-K-D-R Brown. And every day when the radio is live, that'll come up. Uh, there's even a button to click if you want to call in. Uh, just click on another button. That'll tell you all of our latest articles, our latest videos. So that's the Ask Dr. Brown app, A-S-K-D-R Brown. You can download that for Android. And Apple, uh, Apple keeps sending our app back and having issues with it. And we can't understand why Apple would have any issue with what I have to say. Um, but we're in a constant battle with social media over righteousness issues. But you can get our, our radio app, the Line of Fire radio. So it's everything the same, except you can't watch live video on that. You can, you can watch all the past videos, but the radio will just be audio. So that's the Line of Fire radio. So download that for your iPhone, the Line of Fire radio. We can be in daily touch with you. All right, before we open the word together, I just want to pray for some folks. During the Brownsville Revival, we birthed a school of ministry, which has continued today as Fire School of Ministry, so many years together now uh, online. And uh, one of our students in the late 90s, is Glenn Gerhauser, he and his wife Anna have been in Australia now, uh, and in Brisbane for about 20 years. So graduated from the ministry school and have come over here and, and have their own school and, and church. So some of the students are here. So Glenn, if you could just come up with the students. We didn't get to spend special time with them. But as he pointed out to me, since he's a spiritual son, these are spiritual grandchildren. And some are some pretty big grandchildren, as I'm... <laughs> watching here. So yeah, just come on up. We want to pray for you. And um, 
Awesome, sure thing. Yeah, just come and stand across the front here. What a joy to have you. Praise God. So this is Glenn and some of the, some of the students here. Praise God. Awesome. Yeah, this, this brother, you look like a grandson of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. You know, just seeing the folks here, so many from, from the islands, I'm reminded of the scriptures that, that speak of the distant coastlands waiting for the gospel. Amen? And you think of the, the missions God can send you on and the different places where you can go and people you can reach. So we, uh, would you mind standing for a second? Is that all right? And let's just reach our hands out towards them. I just want to go through and, and pray. So, Lord, we pray for your sons and daughters as they're in ministry training and in, in growing you, Lord. We pray for fresh revival fire. We pray for deeper passion for you, deeper hunger for you, deeper love for you, deeper love for your word, deeper love for souls. Lord, we pray for great anointing and grace to flood their lives. We pray you take them deeper, God, deepen their convictions, deepen their desire for you, deepen their desire for righteousness, deepen their capacity for your spirit. Bless and anoint grace poured out supernaturally, Lord. May they be bearers of revival, bearers of the gospel going back to their native lands, going to other nations and bringing the good news, Lord. May some go where no one has gone before to declare Jesus. Keep them strong and safe to carry out your mission and give them a fresh revelation of your love and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you. Thanks. I just want to tell you a quick story. Uh, and then we'll open the scriptures. We had, uh, in our ministry school, at its height, we had almost 1,200 full-time students. And they were, at one point, from about 34 different nations. So mainly from America, but from, from many nations. And we would start each new semester with special chapel services for the whole week. So we had a very intense environment of prayer and hunger and going after God. I was talking to, to Pastor Tony and Patsy today about the atmosphere and the revival. For several years, the lines would form at 6 in the morning for people to wait online for the doors to open at 6 in the evening for the services to start at 7 in the evening to go past midnight, 1 in the morning, and people radically encountering God, getting born again every week and every night. And our, our school had a very strong heart for missions. It was just part of our DNA from day one. And one chapel service to start the semester, I said, I, I want every international student to come and, and line up here, and I want you to pray for your country, and we want to agree with you and intercede for your country. But even if you speak English well, which they all did to be in the school, I said, I want you to pray in your native language. Unless your native language is English, I want you to pray in your native language. And it was for two reasons. One, I wanted them to have full expression without anything held back to pour their heart out. And two, there's just something about hearing the, the, the voices, the, the languages of the nations. And, and it, it was one of the most extraordinary meetings I was ever in, in the midst of thousands of extraordinary meetings. As these students got up to pray for their countries, they got overwhelmed with a burden. And they began to wail and scream for their countries. I mean, some would get a few words out and just collapse in a heap of tears. It just was spontaneous. 
And, and the, it just, it went like electricity through the student body, souls, we've got to reach the nations. We've got to reach the nations with the gospel. And that, that's God's heart. That's God's heart. He beats for it. He, he beats for your nation. He beats for, for the nations of the world, uh, the Muslim world, the Hindu world, the, the atheists, the secularists. The, his heart beats for them. And as we get his heart, we, we don't just kind of skip our way through life because we, we share some of that burden. But, you know, those who sow with tears will reap with joy. And it's so remarkable to see so many that prayed with tears for their nations now back in their nations, bearing fruit, making an impact. So continue to pray, continue to believe, never just accept the status quo where you are. Thank God for what he's doing, but, but cry out to him until you see his kingdom promises realized. All right, we'll pray once more. Thank you, Father for your goodness and love. Lord, I thank you for the hunger of your people to be here on this Sunday night, to take in your word together. Enrich us, instruct us. Lord, you be our teacher through your word and give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've done two of three parts of our series on grace today, starting this morning with God's true grace really painting a picture of the marvel and wonder of grace. How in a moment of time, God takes us as lost sinners by nature objects of wrath, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2. And in a moment of time, through faith in his son, pronounces us righteous, saved, forgiven, and we go from children of the devil to children of God, from death to life, from hell bound to heaven bound from being separated by God to being indwelt by the Spirit. And it's a gift of God. We can't earn it. We can't work towards it. We can't better ourselves until we become worthy of it. We are only worthy of it through the cross. In ourselves, we are utterly unworthy. And we stand by grace. And that grace transforms us. That grace changes us. It is not just a ticket to heaven, but it is a transformed life that we now live to do the will of God. True grace, beautiful and wonderful, but so beautiful and so wonderful that it can be misunderstood and abused. And that's why Paul dealt with it in Romans 6 and said, what, shall we continue to sin so grace may abound? The more we disobey, the more God has mercy. I mean, is that the way it works? And because we're not under the law, we're under grace, does that mean we can do what we want? So he dealt with abuses. And Jude spoke of those godless people who turned the grace of God into a license for immorality. So our second message was on counterfeit grace. It calls itself grace, but it is not really grace at all. It bypasses the cross. It bypasses repentance. It offers basically a ticket to heaven without life being changed. And ultimately, it opens the door for every kind of abuse because if you just say the words of a prayer without ever encountering God, without ever transacting that, that salvation act of the Lord, if you just say the words and then you're told, hey, no matter how you live, you're still in, that could damn people to hell by deceiving them into thinking that they're saved. So we looked at the many scriptures that speak of repentance as the foundation of the gospel. That by God's grace, we turn away from sin and to him, God, save me, have mercy on me, renew me, make me a new creation. We looked at the many verses that warn against deception. Don't be deceived. Those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom. 
We used to be a certain thing. We used to live a certain way. Now we're the children of God. We're not yet perfect, but because we're the children of God, we desire to do his will. We delight to do his will. But there's something that's become very prevalent in recent years. I had heard this term and then felt it was the best term to use, and then it became more popularized as we began to write on it and speak about it, and we call it hypergrace. Now, there's some proponents of it who say, yes, we are hypergrace. Grace is more than enough. Grace is, is above and beyond. You can't exaggerate it. We are hypergrace. Paul said that grace is hyper. Some embrace it, but I didn't want to use the term counterfeit grace because that does not save. Whereas hypergrace brings a beautiful, wonderful, life-changing revelation of grace that has helped millions of people around the world, but it is mixed together with significant error because of which millions have also been hurt by the message. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes this. Verse 12. With the help of Silas whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. What's fascinating is that 1 Peter does not really seem like a grace book the way it's often preached today. I mean, he calls us in the first chapter, God says, be holy as I am holy. There's the exhortation to grow in maturity in the the second chapter and and the call to submit in the end of the second chapter, beginning of the third chapter. There's the call to persevere in prayer. There's the call to endure suffering. I mean, it's, it's a pretty strong book. And at the end, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. What's the difference between God's true grace and what we call hyper grace? Can you exaggerate the message of grace? Can you go too far with it? Can you add things to it that make it dangerous? Please understand that I do not see myself as God's policeman. And it's my job to patrol the church of the world and correct error. That would be an incredibly ignorant and arrogant and foolish notion. And no one person has the whole revelation of everything. There are fundamentals that that are hills that will die on. There are things that are non-negotiable, but there are plenty of areas. Hey, you have more insight than me. I have more insight than you. We learn from one another. And many times it's just a matter of perspective and semantics and culture, and, and we react wrongly. I do not go around looking for error to correct. But some things will come to me. In other words, I'll run into it here and here and here and here and here. And then you begin to realize there's a trend. There's something happening. You begin to get burdened. People begin to ask you questions about this. I began to notice something rising on social media. And and I might just post a verse, just a verse about holiness. And suddenly comments come flooding in. You're not going to put that condemnation on me. That's legalism. I just quoted the verse. I didn't preach, I didn't say anything, I just quoted a verse. I begin to urge people to live for God and serve God. They say, that's behavior modification and sin management. I'd find the identical words. So I just began to search for the words, and they would go back to the same few teachers. Now, I, I understood what was happening. Many people come from legalistic churches. 
Many people come from churches that were abusive in their practices, and because of that, they swing from one extreme to another. And there's the old story about these two farmers who were talking, and one farmer said to the other, I understand you're a Christian. He goes, that's right, I'm a Christian. He said, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he thought for a minute. He said, well, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't run around with the ladies. The other guy thought, and he said, I guess my mule is a Christian. Because <laughs> my mule doesn't drink or smoke or run around with the ladies. I mean, somewhere in that environment where everything is judged by this external or that external, and, 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 and they run from that, and they embrace this, this message that emphasizes grace, but then can swing too far. Paul said in Romans 11.22, writing to the believers there, and speaking to Gentile believers in particular, behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Look at both. We could preach God's love and overemphasize it to the point that there's no justice. We could preach God's holiness and emphasize it to the point that there's no mercy. We must look at the whole picture. And what happens with hypergrace, some of it is reactionary, some of it recovers a beautiful message, but then goes too far with it. And even though every hypergrace preacher and teacher that I know of, I mean the, the leading ones whose books I've read or folks I've interacted with, they all say that God's grace is not an excuse for sin. Amen. And they all say that God's grace empowers us to live above sin. Amen. But because of other error that it's mixed with, often the, the bubble of holiness is burst, the bubble of, of commitment is burst, and, and anything that has a call to, to pray or to press in or to serve or to strive is, is now considered works righteousness or a mixture of flesh and spirit. And I began to run into this. I would meet people that I knew years ago that were passionate getting up early in the morning to pray and seek God, carrying a burden for the lost, often fasting, saying, God, I just want to be used by you. I want to see you move more. And now I talk to them and go, man, I was just legalist in that. Now, for some, it is. For some, just do it in some outward way. But I knew a lot of these people, and they were passionate, and they were serious, and they, they loved the Lord. So what do you do now? I said, nothing, man. I'm, just, I'm, I'm enjoying grace. It's like, where's the burden? Where's the passion? It disappeared. And I trace it back to the same erroneous message. So, so let me give you the, the heart essence of the hyper-grace error, all right? Do we agree that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all of our sins? Every sin we ever committed, every sin we ever will commit. In fact, he died for us before we were ever born, right? So all of us living on this side of the cross, he died for us before we ever lived, before we ever sinned, and yet he already paid for all of our sins in their entirety. We agree with that, amen? Okay. If not, we're in big trouble, by the way. If he didn't, we're in big trouble. What hypergrace says is this. The moment that you're saved, God not only forgives you for everything you did and for who you are now, right? But he also pronounces you forgiven in the future for every sin you will commit. Because of that, the Holy Spirit will no longer convict you of sin because you are already forgiven of your future sins. Because of that, you don't need to confess your sin and ask your for, for forgiveness because you are already forgiven. 
Because of that, you are already completely holy, and therefore do not have to grow in holiness because you have already been made perfectly holy because all of your future sins have been dealt with. That's the essence of the error. Now hear me. When you got saved, right, you, you became conscious of your sin, your guilt. God, forgive me. Lord, I've been a wretch. I've been terrible. Lord, forgive me. Wash me clean. You were asking God anything that you remembered and came to mind you felt bad about. You asked him to forgive you. And for who we were as sinners, Lord, forgive us. Did any of you think of praying, and Lord, I'm, I'm probably going to sin tomorrow, so please forgive me in advance for that. Who, did anyone think of that? Lord, I've been a drunkard. I've robbed people's houses. And please forgive me. And you know, I'm planning on robbing that house next week, so would you cover that too? Now, nobody would think of that. But hypergrace says that the moment you're saved, that God actually does that. Now, just look with me in 2 Peter chapter 1. He's talking about growing in grace and qualities and things like that. And it says in verse 9 of 2 Peter 1, if anyone does not have these things in their lives, growing in these ways, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. That's what you get cleansed from. I can put a million dollars in the bank for you, right? Maybe you had a $500,000 debt. I said, hey, I got a million in the bank put aside for you. That debt gets paid. But your next debt doesn't get paid in, until you've racked up the debt, all right? So the debt is paid the moment we're saved. And, and as far as salvation, we are forgiven. But now in our ongoing relationship with God, there's ongoing confession, ongoing forgiveness. You say, well, well what do the hypergrace people do with 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They say that's not written to believers. That's an altar call for unbelievers because we're already forgiven. You say, well, where did they get that from? Well, they said, listen, John is a general letter, and it was being written to congregations, and among the congregations, there were saved people and there were lost people. And, and the Gnostics, this one particular heretical group that grew up in the early church, they claimed that they were without sin, that they were spirit beings and without sin. So he's addressing the Gnostics. Well, the first problem with that is Gnostics didn't exist yet. There were groups that ultimately became what we call Gnostics, so you'd have to call them proto-Gnostics or something. But more importantly, when you read through 1 John, every time it says we, us, our, it's talking about the believers. And there's a clear separation between us, the believers. It's written to believers and those on the outside. 1 John 2, they went out from among us. 1 John 4, the one in us is greater than the one in the world. It's them and us. But not only so, in 1 John 1, the Greek is present, ongoing. This is not a one-time event. This is the cycle of our lives. If we confess our sins, this is something ongoing. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's an ongoing process. It's like John, the 13th chapter, where Jesus goes to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter says, no way. I mean, this is the master. This is the Lord. He's, going to, he's not going to wash my feet. No way. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. So Peter, being a little impulsive, what does he say? <laughs> I want the whole bit. Just wash me head to toe. You know, if that's it, then let, me, let me get the whole, the whole deal here. And what does Jesus say? No, no, no. The one who's bathed 
Doesn't need to be bathed again. He just needs his feet washed. You're already cleansed by the word. So what's the imagery? So in the ancient world, you didn't have running water in your home. Right? You didn't have you know, a shower and bath with running water. So you would bathe at the river or at the bathhouse. So you, you'd walk there and you had muddy streets and dirty roads and all this. You'd walk there barefoot. You're in your sandals, whatever. You get there, you bathe, you get home. When you get home, your feet are dirty. So what do you need? To, you just need to wash your feet. Have a little bucket with water to wash your feet. So Jesus is saying, as far as salvation, you're cleansed once and for all. You don't, listen, if, if you wept at the altar, you got saved, you came forth at a church service, an evangelistic meeting, and you wept at the altar, and, and, and you, you prayed for God to have mercy, and you were gloriously born again and forgiven, you don't have to get saved again when you mess up. Oh, I need to go back to that same church and have the same preacher preach, and this, I need the same music. And I, no, you don't need to do that again. In that sense, forgiveness of sins is once and for all. And, and scripture mentions that in other passages. But on a relational level with God, our feet get dirty all the time. When we walk in this world, and when that happens, because we love God and we're in relationship with him, we, we confess. It, it's not for salvation, it's relational. It doesn't mean that, let's say you're driving in your car, and somebody cuts you off, and you lose your temper, and you lay on the horn, and you actually curse them out, use bad language, and you get so flustered, you actually crash the car and die. You don't go to hell because you didn't have a chance to confess. Oh, I didn't have a chance to confess that. It's not the best way to enter heaven, you know. But it's <laughs> See, some people live under that burden, though. They think, if I don't confess every last sin before I go to sleep at night and I die in my sleep, I'm going to go to hell. That's a horrific thing to be hanging over you. But if I'm aware I've done something wrong, Father, oh, Lord, I can't believe I blew it. Lord, forgive me. Wash me. Thank you for cleansing me. It's just getting your feet washed. What happens with your relationship if you don't do that? What happens to your relationship with your spouse if, if things come in and, and you don't acknowledge and you don't interact in that way? Hypergrace says, no, the moment you're saved, your past sins, your present sins are forgiven and your future sins are pronounced forgiven and therefore the Holy Spirit will never convict you. I mean, think of that. Think of the times when the convicting love of the Holy Spirit has saved your life. Think of the times when the convicting love of the Holy Spirit has helped you to, to go in the right direction and turn from the wrong direction. You say, yeah, but hang on, hang on. John 16, look at what Jesus said. Conviction is not for the church, it's for the world. John 16, verse 8. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict who? The world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin because men do not believe in me in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned so hyper grace teaches that the Holy Spirit does not convict believers he convicts the world now think of this doctrine that says I don't need to confess sin because I'm already forgiven and the Holy Spirit will never convict me of sin. Think of the doors of deception that can open up. Think of the hardness of heart that could come in. You know, our nerve system is a gift from God. And, and if you don't have your nerves functioning properly, you could, you could burn your hand and, and you don't even know it. It's the same way if, if you can shut off the voice of the Holy Spirit, you can fall into all kinds of sin and error. And that's what we've seen happen with so many people. 
One of my friends had a friend who was going through a severe trial. And through the day, he kept rebuking Satan, rebuking Satan, rebuking Satan, I rebuke you, get behind me, Satan, I rebuke you, Satan, I rebuke you, get behind me, Satan. And finally, the Lord said to him, you know, you and I would get along a lot better if you quit calling me Satan. (laughs) You say, yeah, but what about this verse? It says the Holy Spirit will convict the world in these ways. Correct, that's true. But the exact same Greek word, elenko, is used often in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit's ministry to us in the sense of rebuke or correct. You have it in in Paul exhorting Titus and Timothy how to preach and to to correct and rebuke. It's it's the same word that's used. And and, and what's written in Revelation 3.19? Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. The word rebuke is the same word there. And then what does it say three verses later, 322? This is what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit says, those that I love, I rebuke. Same word here. It's not condemnation, it's conviction. Condemnation is, you're guilty, get away from me. Damned, doomed, that's it. Conviction is, you've sinned, come near me. You've done what's wrong. Come near me. So hypergrace denies the need to confess sin for forgiveness, relational forgiveness. Hypergrace denies that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin today. You say, but but about this forgiveness thing, what about the Lord's Prayer? I mean, didn't Jesus teach that too? Didn't he say in, in Matthew 6 and Mark 11 and other passages that if you forgive others, the Lord will forgive you? And if you don't forgive, he won't forgive you. So what do hypergrace teachers do with that? Simple. They throw it out. You say, what do you mean? It is a common hypergrace teaching that the words of Jesus spoken before the cross were for the Jewish people then and not for today. Throw out the Sermon on the Mount. One hypergrace teacher said that if Jesus knew that we were applying the Sermon on the Mount to ourselves, he'd either fall on the ground laughing or weeping. Another hypergrace teacher explained how a woman had been listening to his his messages on TV, an American pastor, and she'd been getting freer and freer and, and coming out from under condemnation, and then she read the Sermon on the Mount and messed with her again, and he was able to deliver her from, from the Sermon on the Mount. All the parables, goodbye. All the exhortations, all the take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself, goodbye. Of course, it makes no sense that Jesus would spend all this time teaching for that that small group of people during a few years. I mean, ultimately small because just over a few years. And that decades later, the gospel authors would take all the time to write it and put it in the gospel form when it's not for us. That would make no sense. But what did Jesus say in John 14, 26 to his disciples that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance what he said? And what's written in in John 15, 7? Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask what you will and it will be done for you. And and what's the great commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20? What does Jesus say? That we go into all the world, make disciples of the nations, teaching them to do what? Observe everything I have commanded you. The the Greek is, is what I previously commanded you. 
So what kind of a disciple are you going to be? How whole will you be? How complete will you be if you think that all the words of Jesus before the cross don't apply to you? And you think of the promises. It's, it's just mind-boggling. It's grievous. But that's what happens. The wrong theology drives things even further. And then there are some hyper-grace teachers that say that the big error of the Reformation was it stopped short. It taught justification by faith, but not sanctification by faith. It taught justification as a free gift from God, and now you grow in holiness. You become more and more and more holy. One American hypergrace pastor said that is a spiritually murderous lie. The idea that sanctification, growing in holiness, is a process, he said it is a spiritually murderous lie. Now, we have verses like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, where Paul says, don't be deceived, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live like this, those who practice sexual immorality, those who are drunkards, greedy, slanderers, etc., they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, but that's what some of you were. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. That's what some of you were. But you are washed, you are justified, you are sanctified. In other words, you have already been set apart as holy. We talked about that in True Grace, the first message this morning. The moment you're saved, at that instant, you're sanctified. You're set apart as holy. And how does God write to the believers in the New Testament through the apostles? To the saints. In Greek, that's the holy ones. I mean, think of that. Think of it. You're, you're, you're saved for one second, right? You were a Satan worshiper. You, you were a God mocker. You're saved for one second, and you read that, that applies to you, to Holy Dave, to Holy Mike, to Holy Patsons. What? That's, we've been set apart at that moment. It's like we've been given the uniform of the Holy Ones. But now the rest of the New Testament tells us to live it out, to grow in it, to pursue it, to be it. And then we look forward to the day of our resurrection when we will be perfectly, totally holy forever. Let me illustrate this to you with Scripture. What does Paul pray for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he prays this prayer in verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are not already sanctified through and through. We are set apart as holy at the moment of salvation. And now we grow and progress in holiness and become more and more like Jesus, hopefully in an ongoing way until we see him face to face. What does he write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Beginning verse 1, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. I'm already sanctified, Paul. Didn't you get it? Yeah, yeah. You're already set apart. Now live it out. Sanctification is progressive. Say it again, past, present, future. The moment we're saved, 
We're set apart as holy. Now we are called to grow in holiness, and one day we will be made perfectly holy. This is not legalism. This is not anti-grace. This is living out the message of grace empowered by God. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Paul, that's legalistic. I mean, that's the way hyper-grace people react when you start getting specific. Well, that's laws, and that's, no, this is life-giving. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with law. The problem with law is if God commands you and doesn't empower you, then you're condemned by it. But the law itself is good. What does Paul say in Romans 12? The law itself is holy and just and good. It's beautiful and wonderful. We just can't live it out. Now, by grace, we can live it out. Romans 8, that, that through what Jesus has done and our dying with him and rising, that the requirements of the law are now lived out in us. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. It's pretty direct, isn't it? It's God's will that you be holy, and this is what it means, and this is how you live it out. Take a look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We'll start in verse 19. He's talking about victory over sin, subduing the desires of the flesh and the mind. We died with Jesus in baptism, now we rise in new life. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Again, it's undeniably clear. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time for the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Jesus our Lord. Take a look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Hypergrace, again, the, the fundamental error goes back to that idea that the moment you're saved, God not only forgives your past and present sins, but all your future sins as well, and then sees you as completely holy. So you don't have to confess sin. You say, well, what do I do if I blow it? What does a hypergrace teacher say? That you say to the Lord, I agree with you that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Okay, that's nice, but what about dealing with the other areas? And what about the cleansing? What about the forgiving? Why do we deny that part? What about the Holy Spirit convicting us? No, we don't believe in that. What about growing in holiness? No, we don't believe in it. Some, some will agree that we grow in holiness, thank God. But the teachers that have had great influence in many, many lives have taught, yeah, that's where the Reformation failed, and this is the new grace revolution, and we have the revelation. And, and I've interacted with some of the folks and had very fruitful, honest Good interactions. Some have, have told me over the, over the years that they're no longer part of the hyper-grace camp. They've seen too many abuses. They don't identify with it. 
But one thing that I saw with so many is they were some of the nastiest people I ever dealt with. That doesn't line up here. You know, we get hundreds of thousands of comments on our, on our social media pages over the months, so I don't see the vast majority of them. But every so often, I'll, I'll see something and decide to make it a teachable moment. So I, had, I was posting some things and some correction about hypergrace around the time when I was writing my hypergrace book. And some guy, some guy came on my Facebook page and rebuked me and called me a jerk. So I, I responded to him. I said, I, I pray that you really come to know the Lord, really come to know his love and forgiveness. So he comes screaming back, what do you mean? I'm sad. How do you judge me? How, how do you think I'm not saved? I said, well, normally my brothers and sisters don't call me a jerk. Just, you know, it's a normal communication among believers. And, and he says, well, you never lose your temper? I said, I used to have a fierce, ferocious temper in my life. I, I, was, I was infamous for it before I was saved. And when I was first saved, I had some outbursts. I, was, I had a terrible temper. I said, but God's grace has conquered that in my life. I'm changed. And then I began to interact with the guy privately. He goes, yeah, you're right. I should do better. But it's like, why all the name calling and calling us Pharisees and this and that and all the insults in the name of grace? Like something's wrong with this picture. Something's wrong with it. So look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, so between Jesus and Satan? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? It doesn't mean that we don't mingle with people, that we're not friends with people in the world, but the, there's a sinful joining together. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Think of that. The moment you're born again, no matter what a mess you are, your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wild? And we as a body, corporately, become the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, we as a body, temple of the Spirit. Ephesians 2, we as a body. 1 Peter 2, we as a body, temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, we as individuals, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The moment we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. Wow, that's wild. If I was God, I'd wait for the house to get cleaned up a bit. <laughs> Then little by little, like, visit here and there before I come to live there, you know? Not God. That's, again, amazing grace. Wow. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. As far as sin, we come out from the world. As far as souls, we go into the world. We come out from the world in terms of partaking of its sin. We go into the world to reach a lost world. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. What a glorious passage. And in light of the promises God has given us, forgiveness, mercy, becoming the temple of God, we become his children. He dwells in our midst, receives us. Wow, 
Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's an ongoing growing and living it out and pursuing it and seeking on a daily basis to, to be more like him. As, as a new believer, once God cleaned me up from the outward junk of, of, of drug addiction and, and drinking and foul living, then he began to deal with, with character issues. And the first thing was, was my terrible temper. Just a fierce, jealous temper. I'd just become like another person. It was terrible. It, it raised up a few times after I was saved, so I just grieved over it. Pray. I was just like this rage. Some of you have dealt with it. You understand? And i just go to the Lord, and I'd pray, and be like the simmering would just go down. And, and then I'm reading the Word more and praying more, and, and I started to memorize Scripture. And then every night, it was, it was my habit, just my, my, my late-night prayer time before I'd go to sleep as a, as a you know, 17, 18-year-old. And I, I, would, I would pray through the, the qualities of 1 Corinthians 13. You know, I'd memorize these passages. So I, I would pray for those qualities of love in my life. And in 2 Peter 1, at your faith, this, this, this. I, I'd pray those over myself. And then I'd pray just through my whole, my whole body from head down, Lord, the thoughts I think, Lord, the things I hear, the things I see, what I say, just that my whole life would be sanctified and given over to God. And you just, just keep going to him and asking him. And, and, and we understand it's, a, it's something he does. We participate, but then, but then he does it in us. It's glorious and wonderful. And, and you really can see change. You really see the Holy Spirit working. And, and many times you don't realize it because you're the one in the midst of it. But, but then people see you that haven't seen you in years. Or, wow, you changed. I, I was in Texas a few years ago uh, ministering at an Israel conference there. And there was an old friend of mine who knew me. Oh, we were friends from like the mid-80s on. And he was a wonderful, anointed worship leader. And the pastor of this church did a lot of outreach in his community and really had a heart to reach the gay and lesbian community. But sometimes they'd get so nasty to him and provoke him so much that, that he'd get angry. And he said, man, I need help with that. And, and, and he turned to my friend and he said, was, was Dr. Brown always compassionate towards people? He goes, nope, <laughs> nope. In fact, in our congregation, we used to every so often have a membership drive where the leaders asked me to preach and, and the goal was to drive out all the people that shouldn't be members. <laughs> it's like, this is who we are. This is what we believe. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. God bless you. Because the pastors are always too nice. Like, well, we can talk. And we can see maybe of your perspective. You spend like 12 years trying to work out your differences. It's like, just bring me in to bring the ax. <laughs> Is Dr. Brown always like that? No. So, so we're growing. It's a beautiful thing. Notice as we were singing holy to the Lord tonight, we weren't singing holy is the Lord. Holy, holy is the Lord. Listen, if God wasn't holy, I don't want to go to heaven. If, if he's not holy, if he's just, who knows what he's going to do next. If he's not perfect love and perfect goodness, perfect justice, heaven's a dangerous place. Holiness is beautiful. First Peter chapter 1. Just a few more verses on this. Beginning verse 13. Again, in light of the glorious gospel. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. 
Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter, we are already holy. No, that wasn't the answer. And by the way, Peter had no problem quoting from Leviticus either. Whoa. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And Hebrews 12, 14 urges us to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we stand forgiven because of the cross in terms of our salvation. One sin or another sin is not what keeps us out of God's eternal presence. You know, it's not like you lost your salvation because you lost your temper, or you lost your salvation because you thought a lustful thought, or you lost your salvation because you were selfish. You lost your salvation because the Holy Spirit convicted you to pray and, and, and you didn't pray. Now, that just hurts us in our walk with God, and these things are defiling and polluting, but we're saved because of what Jesus did on the cross and our reception of it. And to me, the whole, quote, lose your salvation debate, to me that, again, we can differ on this, but as I understand it, God's promised to keep us, but he doesn't force us to stay in his house. So someone can willfully abandon the Lord, just as we were saved by putting our faith in him. Someone can willfully abandon the Lord and convert to some other religion and, and renounce him and, and walk away. But either way, he's promised to keep us. So if you want to serve him, be, be at peace. He's more committed to keeping you than you're committed to being kept. And after more than 48 years in the Lord now, man, I, I glory in the faithfulness of God, not the faithfulness of Mike Brown. I'm a serious believer. I'm committed to the Lord, but I stand by grace. And my boast the day I stand before the Lord is his, is his righteousness, not mine. My boast is the cross, not my track record. So we, we revel in God's grace and goodness, but we know at the same time that it's grace that brings accountability and grace that brings responsibility and grace that calls us to grow and mature. And, and one colleague of mine, a, a professor, went through the New Testament and found hundreds and hundreds of exhortations to pray, to strive, to seek, to run, to go for it. Because hyper-grace basically said, just rest. You know, one guy said, I, I was so messed up by the parables of Jesus and rewards and things like that, and Jesus said to me, you already won, and that fixed it for me. So just throw out the words of Jesus then. None of it has any meaning. So from that place of security in the Father, because we have a relationship, if we blow it, yeah, of course we confess to him. We get our feet washed. We get, we get cleansed. And, and because we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, we love him. And if we start to go off the path, you know, there's that, there's that nudge to go back. And if we're seriously getting off there, maybe that, that strong voice of conviction. But it's a beautiful thing. You know, some of us haven't felt convicted in years. We think it's because we're so holy. No, it's because we're so hard, because we're so distant. And you start to press in again, and the Holy Spirit begins to work in you. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And, you know, there are folks who say, look, sin, that's of the flesh. 
And my spirit is saved, and because the seed of God lives in me, 1 John 3, I, I can't sin, so that's just my flesh. God doesn't care about my flesh. Actually, he said that to me. And, and I reminded folks of a, of a story, ancient rabbinic story, that a Roman leader asked a rabbi, you know, what's going to happen on judgment day? Because the soul is going to say, hey, I, God, you can't judge me because I couldn't do anything. It's the body that did. I can't do anything. And, and the body's going to say, you can't judge me because it's the soul that made me do it. So the rabbi said, give you a parable. There was a guy who had an orchard, fruit trees, and he had two workers. Their, their job was to guard the orchard, a blind man and a crippled man. And their job was to guard the orchard. And he noticed a lot of the fruit disappearing, and he called them in and fired them. And the blind man said, I can't see. How can I possibly rob the fruit? And the crippled man said, I can't walk, let alone reach it. How could I possibly rob the fruit? So the, the owner had the blind man put the crippled man on his shoulders, and he judged them together. That's how they were robbing the fruit. He said, on judgment day, the soul and the body will be put together and judged by God. God's looking at us as whole human beings, and these hyper-spiritual answers are, are corrupting and dangerous. So enjoy the grace of God. Revel in the grace of God. Appreciate the grace of God. And because of it, pursue righteousness, pursue holiness as people forgiven, as people declared righteous, as people declared holy. Seek to please him and grow and find out just what he could do in a yielded human life. Find out the changes he could bring, the, the dynamic work of the spirit, the transformation and the gifting that can work through you all by grace and, and, and run from counterfeit grace. Avoid the errors of hyper grace and the fire and passion will be strong in you to the end. Amen? Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that, that those who've been led astray with wrong emphases, Lord, by, by, by sincere teachers who've been used by you in so many ways, Lord, I pray that those who've been led astray or hurt, that you bring them back on the right path. And for each of us, Lord, wherever we have blind spots, for me, for any of us, anything we're missing in the revelation of your goodness and grace, show us that we can pursue you with all of our heart and soul and be all you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We're always encouraged to hear how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story you would like to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know and send us an email at church at If you would like more information or resources on this or other topics, or if you would like to sow into this ministry financially to help us share messages just like this one each week, please visit our website at rhema.org.au.